Thanks for listening to the Trial Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Mike Morreale. Mike is the co-founder and commissioner of the CEBL, the Canadian Elite Basketball League. It's a league created by Canadians for Canadians with a mission to bring together both international and domestic basketball talent, whether they be players or coaches or even management. The CEBL is indeed Canada proud as it boasts the highest percentage of domestic players of any pro league in the country. But you also might know Mike from his 12 years as a standout receiver in the Canadian Football League, eight seasons and one Grey Cup championship with his hometown Hamilton Tiger Cats, and four seasons and another Grey Cup championship with your Toronto Argonauts. The McMaster University graduate has also been a past winner of the CFL's Most Outstanding Canadian Award, a Grey Cup Most Valuable Canadian Award, and a Tom Pate Award for outstanding sportsmanship and contributions to both his team and his community. Welcome, Mike, to Trial Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, thank you for the intro. I am I am sitting right now in my home in Grimsby, Ontario, and not too far from you, and um, it, I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent. Well, I'm going to start by asking about your jump shot. Can a 51-year-old Mike Morali still hoop? Uh, I can hoop as well as I hooped back in the day, which is not that well, but I can rebound with the best of them. To put it that way, my touch is his is subject, but my my tenacity is still there. Your elbows are still sharp. Oh, they're still right. They're sharpened. The old Gordy Howe special. Let's jump right in. What is the CEBL? The CBL it really for for lack of a better example is the CFL of basketball. Um, that that's probably and really you know when you look at my history and in my time spent in the CFL and in the fact that the CFL up until five years ago was the only domestic league to ever kind of grace this country for over a hundred years. There obviously is a lot of similarities when it comes to uh, the CBL and the CFL. We operate a little differently because we started from scratch. We're able to mold and shape things how we want, but we're a, a league of 10 teams in two divisions in all the major or most of the major markets across the country. Um, our goal is to showcase our top Canadian talent that has for decades had to go overseas to earn a living and, and, uh, and be seen in basketball, but also to develop the next level uh, of talent, whether that comes through the U Sports program, through the NCAA, or, or really you know outside of players themselves for executives and broadcasters and officials and anybody that is in the basketball ecosystem we've kind of created this this real big kind of gathering space for all that's good in basketball. We're very, you know, happy that the trajectory of basketball is through the roof and can, will continue to be at least for the next 30, 40 years with even the recent championship in 2019 with the, the Raptors. And, and the game of basketball and everything that basketball brings to the table is really exciting with music and art, lifestyle, and culture. I'm very happy where I am now in the sport I'm in now. And you have done something very smart. Instead of competing head-on with the biggest basketball leagues in the world, you have chosen to compete in a different time of the calendar. It it really is our secret sauce. So, you know, there are limitations to it, meaning that we can't have a six-month season. But the the whole opportunity was, again, if you go back to the the showcasing of our talent, the the development of talent, um, if you look at domestic leagues and basketball being played all over the world, in North America, we fall behind. Because we are so enamored with the NBA and the NCAA, and we take that route rather than the game that's most widely played all over the world and the one that matters when it comes to World Cups and Olympic gold medals, and that's the FIBA game. So FIBA basketball, for the most part, mimics the NBA in terms of scheduling. It kind of goes you know, from October through to uh, April, and no different than the hockey kind of schedule. And we just didn't really want to compete against hockey in our markets and the same venues, the same ticket buyers, et cetera. But more importantly, we really wanted to attract the best talent. And if the best talent is playing in those months, then you don't want to do that. Uh, And we knew we had a captive audience of players that then when they're done their eight months playing overseas, that they have to train and get ready for their next contract, wherever it may be. And most of our Canadians were coming home and training on their own. And we thought this would be a great opportunity to to gather them all together, but also to start to introduce, you know, international talent and U.S.-based talent that, again, had that time available to concentrate on on the CBL being their number one priority in the spring and summer. Excellent. And for clarity, that means your season is uh, May through August. That's correct. May through August, 
you know, players are finishing up April, May-ish. So there's a bit of an overlap on the front end. We try and get completed, you know, by the end of August, we will this year, we have a bit of an all-star game that we're, we're implementing that'll be done by end of August and allow our international players to go back to their respective clubs because they make a lot of money when, when they go there, when it'll hold them up or a very player first league. Um, and then, you know, the ability to retain some more American talent because the, the G league, for instance, doesn't start until later October. It, it's a really good time of the year. Uh, and we haven't even got into, you know, the eyeballs and be able to, you know, the betting eyeballs and just the, the vacancy that's created in, in men's basketball during the time which we play. And do you have a broadcast partner? We do. We started the first uh, three and a half years with CBC and just recently this year signed a three-year deal with TSN. Uh, so we're really excited about um, about that and where that future is going. Well, as you know, Mike, you get your players from all over. You can get them from the NBA G League, top international pro leagues, the Canadian national team program, NCAA programs, youth sports. Do you consider yourself a professional development league? I, I think to some respect, yes. We're a professional league that plays in the spring and summer. Our goal is to develop talent. And, and we develop it selfishly for our own use, meaning the senior men's national team and, and you know, the Team Canada programs. We have a very good, healthy partnership with um, Canada Basketball, the, the National Federation. So, yes, all our goals are geared towards the development of not just players, but also the executives and people on and off the court. So that really comes into play in what we're doing. When the players come to town, they don't need to be taught how to play the game. They know how to play the game. This is really about how to how do you put a team together in a relatively short period of time and get them to gel to play high level basketball, where there's a lot of eyeballs on them and a lot of opportunities for them to to move on in their career. Well, as you noted, you follow International Basketball Federation or FIBA rules, and you've incorporated some really unique features into CEBL games. You want to talk about some of those, Mike? Well, I think that the big one that that will come out uh, to anybody who's a fan of basketball is, is the target score, um, which uh, originally was known as the Elam ending, named by uh, Dr. Nick Elam, who was a data scientist out of the U.S. that looked at the NBA and NCAA game and said, man, there's got to be a better way to finish a game. Because if a game's in a blowout situation, you know, we always remember the, the last second buzzer beater, right? Those are great. They happen 1% of the time literally 1% of the time. So the other 99% of the time, you're going to get all sorts of finishes. But what the typical finish you get in a, in a in a game that's not close is a game that's mired with fouls. Fouls, timeouts, stalling, chance to get guys to the line. The flow of the game goes out the window and it's a mess. And then even with tight games, you get you know, an enormous amount of, of timeouts and, and it's stuff that just takes away from the game. In a target score finish, what that means is at the four-minute mark or under, whatever the first stoppage is in the fourth quarter, the whistle's blown, and at that point, the game clock is done. There is no game clock. There is no time is not a factor. What happens is the, the score, the leading team score, there's a plus nine added to that. So if the leading team is leading 81 to 70, let's say, the target score now becomes 90, and both teams race to 90. So the guy at 70, the team at 70, still has the same opportunity to get to 90 as the, as the team that's winning. And what that really becomes is backdoor, backyard basketball, next bucket wins, really good defense, selective smart offense, and just a better flow to the game. And when we first introduced it, it was our second year in, uh, in our bubble season. And we thought, why not just, let's, let's try it. I mean, what do we got to lose? Like, who knows what's going to happen here? Let's just give it a go. And of course, there was major pushback amongst everybody involved in basketball, but it worked and it worked well and it continues to work well. And, and the big premise is every game ends on a winning bucket. Could be a goaltend, could be a free throw, it could be a dunk, could be a walk-off three, but every game ends on a bucket and it really becomes an enjoyable part of the game and probably the most enjoyable part of the game where people stay in the stands, the game's never over till it's over. And we've seen some amazing comebacks, teams from 17 down going into target score that turned around and won the game, went on, you know, 26 to 8 run to win. So that's probably one of the biggest things, you know, there's there's the entertainment side, the constant music and DJs and, and the excitement that goes on with the game. But, you know, we play basketball, we play very, very good basketball, we're 
entertainment company, right? We deliver entertainment. We deliver content. And that's what we're really proud of as well. Well, I think that's great. And my excellent explanation of the Elam ending. And I, I think just that comment, every game ends with a winning bucket. You got me sold. I love that. What is your relationship like with the NBA? Can you perhaps be a testing ground for rule changes similar to how the MLB, you know, they first test changes in the minors and the, NS, the NHL test changes in the American Hockey League? What's your relationship with like the NBA? We have a good relationship in terms of um, there is dialogue that goes back and forth, pr- more so with the G League, um, because the G League is essentially the training ground for the NBA. So we kind of, I think there's very similar, a lot of similarities there. Our pay scale is very similar. Uh, the talent that we attract is is very similar. And, you know, for, for years now, especially with target score, we have been the training without knowing it. I mean, they the NBA has watched it. They've used the target score in the last uh, three or four All-Star games. They do it a little bit differently than, than we do it. They just introduced target score to the G League last season for their Winter Classic and then for overtime. And my gut tells me that you will see target score likely in the NBA in overtime in the future. I think that is probably the best use of it, excuse me, right now with all the moving parts that the NBA has. But they've kicked the tires, and they don't kick the tires unless there's, there's, there's a reason for it. So we have good relationships with them, you know, from a basketball perspective. Um, the same with the Raptors. I think on the basketball side, we've had conversations with with Webster and 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 the rest of the crew, and certainly the G League team and and their uh, people. So there's a very healthy relationship that we all want basketball to exceed or succeed in this country, and we all have to work together to play our part in that. And what's your relationship like with Canada basketball, the Canadian national men's team, and with FIBA itself? Very good for both. Uh, Canada basketball and us are, are very like-minded. We They understand the importance of a strong domestic league. They've now seen the results of that um, over the last several years, including you know 20-some-odd players that have played on the national team um, in the build-up to the World, World Cup. Um, we work collectively on running events with Canada basketball so, so we can help them. Uh, when they need our help in terms of the the operations, the promotion of events, so they can concentrate on on what's important to them. As for FIBA, the same thing. We've played the last few years internationally in in what's called the Champions League of Americas, which is is very similar to it's Champions League in soccer. The best, you know, the champions of each respective you know leagues in, in the Americas, Central, North, and South America. You know, we play FIBA rules. We clear players through the National Federation. We use officials through the National Federation. You know, we just believe that that is the proper way to do it. If, if we're going to do it, there has to be a reason to do it. That just coincides with everything we're trying to do for players. We have to grow the game and the FIBA game, in, uh, most importantly. Mike, can there or should there be a CEBL for women? I believe there should, and I believe there can. And I believe that we can certainly play a large role in the infrastructure and the operational component of that. Now, we did not plan out to have a women's league. We didn't have a business plan going into a women's league, but I, I certainly have had discussions with other partners like Canada Basketball and hopefully, you know, private entities or, or partners on the commercial side that can make it a reality. Because unlike other leagues that have to start from scratch, the fact that we've already built what we've built, there's opportunities to piggyback on what we've done. And maybe it doesn't start as a 10-team league. We didn't start as a 10-team. Started as a 16 league in 2019 and grown to where we are now. So, to make a long story short, I'm certainly open to it. I've spoken to to many women, um, whether it's you know current or or former players on the national team. They want this to happen. We certainly want to play a part in making that happen. Well, that sounds good. Let's talk a little about the business case for the CEBL. You started as a single entity model, i.e., central league ownership. But it appears now you're morphing to an investor-operator model where perhaps individuals or corporations will own their own teams. Yes, that, that, was, that was a very important part of our planning um, when we launched. We started talking about the thought of a, what would be the CBL in late uh, 2017. We then had a soft launch, if I'm not mistaken, in October of 2018, where we kind of rolled out a brand and had some initial key markets, and we're just started feeling it out. And then properly launched in the early in the 2019 year with a whole new brand look, a whole kind of game plan. But you know, it, it was it was really important for us to have the ability to control the brand, to control the parity in the league, 
to control how the infrastructure was built and, and what it looked and sounded like across the country in various different markets. And the only real way to do it was to have one group, or in this case, one individual that bankrolled it, and one centralized administration that helped get it off the ground. And the goal was to get it started, and very much like MLS did, because uh, it, it almost mimics MLS in, in that respect. And then to grow and to not only bring in local owners and operators for some of those teams that the league had established, and for them to now take it the rest of the way, right, to localize it, use their connections, and we're seeing it live out in real time right now. But it was also, you know, a, a chance for us to, to grow the league when we needed to effectively uh, mitigate risks, or in some cases, take risks that we felt were calculated and we didn't have to ask, you know, and COVID's a great example. Us playing uh, during COVID were the first league in the country to, to play and to do a bubble. No one had done a bubble before or before the, the NHL, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> I don't think anyone else in the government knew what we were doing and how to do it, but we did it. And, you know, if I had to ask 10 people permission, it likely we wouldn't, this league probably wouldn't exist as we know it right now. But we went ahead with it. We did it. We followed it up with a, another COVID year and the first lead to welcome back fans in 2021. And again, we took risks that were necessary to be where we are now. But the goal was to always find local operators. So we, we've done that now out of, across our 10 teams. You know, we started with six independent teams, then seven, then when nine, and we had one external when uh, the OVO group and, and Nico and Sam joined to purchase Scarborough last year. And then now we have six owners across 10 teams. So there are still a few teams that we are looking, um, not actively, but they are open for local investors. And we've spoken to majority of people and they will own and operate their team. But the way the CBL works is they also have equal shares in the league because it's very important that we are a league first entity. We have to, be. it doesn't matter how strong the teams are, what teams win championships. If the league is not strong, uh, league is not solvent and we can't move things forward. The teams don't matter. So we've, we've morphed that way. We will continue to do it. I, I believe it was the right strategy. And I think it's the right strategy for any league, truthfully, to get off the ground. And uh, the MLS is a great example of that. You know, what the MLSC purchased the, the FC for in 2004 or five, whenever that was, compared to what it's worth now and what those franchises are worth well now is all because of the investment of those team owners back into the league, back into broadcast, back into marquee players. And you're starting to see it now roll out in terms of valuations. Well, I think it's a great point, Mike. Having the individual team owners also have equity in the league. Everyone's pulling in the same direction. Right. It certainly makes sense. How do salaries work? Are players expected to get a job in the offseason or, or do they generally just play more basketball for other teams in leagues that aren't playing at the same time that the CEBL is playing? Yeah, then we were, we're almost their secondary role. Certainly for the established players, we would be a primary uh, experience for our graduating players uh, from U Sport or NCAA, or even some of our developmental players, which are those that can go back to uh, of eligibility remaining. So for them, because of when our season falls, you know, school finishes, and that's kind of their first pro opportunity. But for our other, all our other players, they're pros. They're they're making money in the G League. They're making money in Turkey or in China or in Russia or and making substantial money. Um, we just fill that void that you know I don't think anyone knew was a void until we filled it, and that has really helped us a lot. Be able to attract those players because there is tangible evidence of the players that play in the CBL getting better contracts either back overseas or better opportunities in the G League. Or, you know, we've been very successful over the last, you know, 15, 16 months to send nine players to the NBA. So to sign NBA contracts, that's really unheard of in a domestic league, um, that level or that amount of players. So the players we attract are not just coming to Canada to make a buck, to go on a tour and have a good time. I'm sure they do, and I want them to. Uh, it's a great time to be in the country, but they're here to continue to grow their game. And for some of our older, more established veteran Canadians, it's a chance for them to wind down their career wearing the name on the back of their jersey in their home country, in their home market. So it kind of both sides are, are satisfied. But no, this is this is a true league. There are no plays off. There's no days off. You're being watched by scouts all over the world because again, there's nothing else going on. And so we've been very fortunate to be able to attract players that really come here for the right reasons. When you talk about trying new things, this certainly caught my eye. 
players can be paid in cryptocurrency. Have any of them taken you up on this? Well, thankfully, maybe not a no. (laughs) Thank you. Because who knows what would have happened. But, you know, it was, it did originate because we got interest from players that wanted that. And we thought, well, let's look into it. I I don't see the issue. If this is what the players want, if this is important to them, then let's establish and look and see how we can make this happen. And, and again, I, I'm no cryptocurrency expert, but it's a bit of a roller coaster, as as we all know. Uh, but I think you know we are player first league, and you brought up the point of of how we pay our players. So there's a league salary cap, but there's also a per game salary cap, and we pay our players on a per game basis. And the reason we do that is because there is some flow to players coming and going because we want to be a player first league, which means you can sign a contract in the CBL. But you can also leave to go to NBA Summer League, or you can leave to go to a, a NBA tryout in the middle of the summer. We don't want to stop players from advancing their career. We want to celebrate that. So the ability to have players coming and going, you don't want to get bogged down with a contract, a monthly contract or an annual contract, if the player is going to miss three or four games to go back overseas. So we this per game salary actually benefits everybody because you can plug up person in to replace someone else and that player that gets replaced is off doing another opportunity you know we'll lose a half dozen or more players over the next uh week or so to the summer league we've lost uh for a handful of games right not not forever we've lost a bunch of players this year to nba tryouts uh that have gone for you know they may miss a game they may miss two depending on the schedule three four days at a time but these are all great things you know we, we want our players to have these opportunities we don't want to stand in their way so we built the salary management system that allowed that flexibility. I'm sorry, Mike, but somebody has to play the role of uh, Debbie Downer. Why? This concept of a professional minor league has been tried many times before, not only in basketball, but in soccer, many other sports. How are you going to become and remain financially viable as an ongoing business concern? This was a lot of the work that was done at the outset, right? We, we traveled the country late 2017, 2018, try to figure out what went wrong. Cause we heard all the, the stories of this minor basketball failing repeatedly. And those are true stories. Uh, for the most part, a lot of those were 20 plus years ago where basketball certainly wasn't where it is today. A lot of those leagues were American leagues that propped in, flew in a couple, you know, Canadian teams to kind of, uh, get their foot in the door. They weren't run well. The league wasn't, you know, taking care of them. In other cases, you had leagues that competed directly against hockey uh, in the winter in a traditional sense. And again, it's it's almost like you know a, a battle you're going to lose. It's got too much history and tradition, and, and venues are are made for hockey, and there's a lot of obstacles to go. But what we really do well is manage expenses. We're fair to the players. We pay on average more than a G League player would make on a per game basis. You know, we want to make sure our players are comfortable and have great accommodations and ways to get around and and don't have to necessarily spend the money they're making from a salary perspective and get to visit this great country. And for our Americans, it's close to home. They feel at home. So they want to come to Canada. That's That's a calling card. It's a great time of year to do it. But we also need to know who we are. And I think we knew quite early, we're not the Raptors. We don't want to be the Raptors. We want to be the best basketball player in this country outside of that. So we know the talent's there. So it, it's very good from my position to be able to market something that you believe is the best quality because you have the best players available. There is no MLS to us, so to speak, right? There is no tier above us. It's the NBA and everybody knows the NBA is the best league in the world. And where do we fit in? We want to be the best league in Canada. We're very well respected internationally, our, our talent and our quality of play. More so, I always say this, more so than at home, because that's a Canadian thing, you know, not to, not to, you know, celebrate your own sometimes. But slowly and surely, you know, we are able to attract a lot of people that are basketball fans, that are entertainment fans, immigrants to this country. The diversity of our, our fan base is tremendous. Um, I think that's one of the things that is, that we celebrate because a lot of other leagues that play more, you know, North American traditional sports like football or hockey, they don't attract the same fan base because the people that come here don't understand those as much, but they understand cricket and soccer and, and, and basketball. So how do we maintain the fact that we want to be around for a long time? We just have to be really good at what we do. 
We have to take care of our, our biggest asset, which is the players. We have to ensure that we we get you know twenty five hundred plus fans in the building that we're using all our forms of media to deliver the message. But we can't get ahead of ourselves, right? We have to be very smart and methodical on what we do. And and to date, you know, we've been able to do that and really showcase a product that looks a lot better sometimes than what we put into it. And I don't mean the players on the court. I mean, what we're able to do, except we make magic with a, with a lot less than most leagues would. And, and when you look at most leagues in, in Canada and domestic leagues and even American leagues that come in, the teams that play here, I mean, you're all, they're always fighting to, to do more, do more, do more, but that just raises, raises costs and expenses. And at some point you're like, holy man, it, it cost me 25 million to put this team on the field. That's a big hole to climb out of. And we don't want to become that. We want to, we want to be very smart in how we approach things. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Terry O'Reilly, Evan Solomon, Ted Wallishan, Ken Reed, Jesse Fuchs, Nelson Millman, and John Shannon. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. Great job, Mike. You have survived the Inquisition. You've uh, made the case. You got me convinced. Let's move on to the really fun part of this chat, which is going all the way back, getting the Michael Morreale story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Born in Hamilton. Uh, you know, I, I, I grew up in a sports family. I'm an Italian kid, you know, in an Italian city, essentially. And and uh, the Thai Cats were the big thing. And my my dad had, had played football, not professionally. He went to, he played university football. Uh, my family were huge fans. My grandfather on my dad's side was a season ticket holder since he was a teen, going to Civic Stadium in Hamilton and, and going to each AAA grounds before that. And really, you know, him and his brothers and sisters, my great aunts and great uncles, were just fans and, and they love football. So I grew up in that environment and my dad played football and it was important to me. So I started going to games when I was five years old and going to, to, uh, to Iverwind Stadium and experiencing the coolest thing in the world to me. And, and that really started my desire and, and love for the game and the fact that I could see on the field that if you try and art, maybe there's an opportunity. Like the, maybe, maybe this, you can do this, could be a career and I think that's exactly what we're trying to do on the basketball side with the CBL is there's people in the stands that watch us that want to be on that court. That's what lights the fire from after that. It's up to them, right? To see where it takes it, but the fire needs to be lit somewhere. So it was for me. And, and, um, you know, there's two sides of my family. There's the Morelli side and then there's the Masadi side. And that's my mom's side. And that, you know, my cousin Paul played a long career, uh, with the Argo. So then, as I started getting older and I saw my cousin go out there and start playing professionally or playing in university and moving on, I was like, oh, now it's hitting close to home. Now there might be a real opportunity. But I grew up playing soccer. I played 16 years of soccer. I was a, I was a keeper. I think that's likely in hindsight where I got my hands and my ability to, to track the ball and, and do all that stuff. And, you know, at some point, soccer just didn't have a future the way that it maybe does now with other leagues that have popped up. And football was the thing I love and I put everything behind it and um, went to McMaster, uh, was able to you know stay at home and, and play with a great group of guys. We never made the playoffs once, but I never gave up on my dream. I, I thought, you know what, listen, I'm just going to keep going and, and seeing it. I, I was fortunate uh, to get drafted and then, you know, the rest is kind of history as far as my, my career. Well, you are too humble a guy, Mike, because you went over all that pretty quick, but you were excellent from the very beginning. Cardinal Newman Secondary School, you were Athlete of the Year, you were the football MVP. It appears it was pretty much a no-brainer to attend McMaster University in your hometown. That obviously turned out to be a good choice. You finished your McMaster Marauder career with almost 2,000 receiving yards, school record 16 touchdowns. You were named to the McMaster Hall of Fame in 2005, and you were a member of the McMaster University football team of the century. Did you ever figure out what a marauder was? No idea. <laughs> I thought it was a person, but uh, we got this we got this bird of some sort on the side. Who knows? I'm, of course, uh, just jealous. My brother Lawrence and I were at Western. While you were at McMaster, we went to a lot of Mustang football games, and the number one challenge was always 
how are they going to deal with Mike Morreale? So, well, they did a good job. <laughs> they did an all right job. Let's begin with what became a 12-year CFL career in 1995. You started with the Toronto Argonauts, but you were actually drafted by the BC Lions, 17th overall pick in the 1994 CFL draft. What do you remember about that draft day, and how did you end up starting your playing career with the Double Blue? Yeah, that's a great question. So at that time, you could still, you could either delay your draft year to your fifth year, or you could bump it up to your third year. I'm not sure you can do that anymore, that, that bump up, but... I thought that I was ready to try something. I had, I had um, taken the honors program. I was able to get my, you know, my GA if I ended after year three and put my name in the draft, which I did. I was fortunate enough to get drafted. It was a very surreal experience. I mean, I could have gone anywhere. I wouldn't have cared where I went. And, you know, BC picking me up was a chance to do something really completely different. I never would have, you know, I didn't grow up watching the BC Lions, but a great opportunity, trained really hard to get ready for the evaluation camp, to be able to be seen. Because, again, you play on a team that didn't go to the playoffs, so you didn't get that exposure. You know, I had to really work hard to get exposed. McMaster was certainly not the program that they are now. We had great talent. We, we just couldn't come together. We didn't have all the pieces in all the places, but we had a lot of great pieces. And These guys are still my best friends to this very day. But, you know, I, I really had a one goal in mind, and that was I want to play in the CFL and I will do anything to do it. And I will work my tail off to do it. And I was fortunate to to be drafted. And I went down to camp and I was excited to be there. Kent Austin was there as a quarterback. Danny McManus was there as a quarterback. Darren Flutie was a receiver. Uh, Mike Trevathan, all these other, you know, great Swervin Mervin Fernandez, all these. It was mind blowing for me, quite frankly. And I went in. And I felt very quickly that I, I belonged, but I also realized, oh my gosh, this is like a, a, a very significant uh, step forward. So I unfortunately only lasted four days, didn't get a lot of opportunity and was cut very early. And I remember Dave Ritchie, who was the head coach at the time, brought me in and he's like, listen, we got to let you go. I'm like, okay, I didn't really do anything. But he's like, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I got two years of eligibility remaining. I'm going to go back to school. He had no idea. So they could have kept me around to the end of training camp and I could have been camp fodder and they could have kicked the crap out of me, but they chose to send me home, which I guess to me was the very first time, I'll never forget it, that you know I landed at the airport, my dad picked me up and I just broke down because it was kind of the very first time where my dream was shattered. You know what I mean? You, you put everything into it and all of a sudden somebody tells you no and you don't know why and you can't figure it out and you didn't get a chance to impress yourself, but you turn that into a positive and uh, I, was, I, I said, well, you know, I did this for a reason. I, I got out there early because if it didn't work out, I'm going to go back to Mac, play in my fourth year and, and let's see what happens. And, and that did happen and I had a good season. Uh, I ended up, you know, only going the first semester and Toronto uh, picked me up as a free agent. DC didn't protect me at that time, which was strange. They actually changed the rule because of me after I was told uh, the way that you know, you can hold on to certain players that are drafted, et cetera, only because I went on to have a decent career. If I went on to shit the bed, then you probably wouldn't have changed any rules. But, you know, Toronto picked me up. And at that time, it's funny, you know, as a, as a Hamiltonian, the Toronto, the Argos were the worst, you know, team in the history of the, the earth. You just hated them. You despised them. And I was so elated just to get picked up. It didn't enter into my mind that I was going to like the, going to be enemy number one. But I, I went there, went to training camp, had a really good training camp in, in 1995 with the Argos. Just, you know, it, it all came together. We had a terrible year. I think we were 2-16 and 16 or 4-14, and 14, whatever it was. My first taste of pro ball was not anticipated. But, I mean, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and I got to play with my cousin Paul, who was a receiver at the time. There's a lot of really cool things and come back to Hamilton and, and play there. And, and then... You know, 95 into 96, that's when things really changed. That's when Don Matthews came in. That's when Doug Flutie came in. That's when we just reloaded and it just took off. And I got to experience, you know, a, a 15 and three season versus a, you know, a four and 16 or a two and whatever the heck it was at that time. Not very good. And we're winning games playing with arguably the best player that's ever played in the CFL. And of course, pinballs on the team and, and all this stuff. So, you know, the, the icing on the cake in 96 was I got some playing time. 
I started the year, likely would have been on the practice roster. And again, uh, Rob Crefo got hurt. So the door opened. I took it. I, I never went on a practice roster my whole career. I never missed a game in 12 years my whole career, but stupid. I probably played in 40 I never should have been in. But, um, you know, it just, it took off. And that year, um, very early, Jeff Farrell, he always wore those really shitty old uh, shoulder pads, like really bad, like hockey style. And they always would break. The snaps would pop. So he'd have to come out and that would give me my opportunity to come in. So I never wanted him to get a good pair of pads. I'm like, you wear those as long as you want. I got in and in my first game, which funny enough, uh, was a game before we played BC. I ended up getting six catches for 80 something, 90 yards, whatever it was, and really made a little impact in my short period of time. So we flew out to to BC the next week and there was Eric Tillman, who was the guy that cut me and Dave Ritchie. And he says, uh, I just happened to run into him at, at the hotel. And he's like, Mike, you know that uh, management, the owner, Bill Comrie at this time, who owned the bricks, called me and said, hey, if this Morielli kid ever becomes available, you need to get him. He goes, I didn't have the heart to tell him we had you last year. We got you. So I've kept that secret too. You know, it was, again, it, it, that's how careers started. Could have went totally the other direction. Totally. If Rob Crefo doesn't get hurt, I'm on the practice roster. If I'm on the practice roster, maybe I don't play. Maybe, you know, I, I think my mindset would have made me get on that field at some point. But something's happened for a reason. And that year culminated in a Great Cup championship in Hamilton. In the wrong colors, if you're a Hamiltonian. But playing at Ivor Wynn in the snow in a Great Cup Sunday was a moment I'll never forget. It, and that was kind of the start to my career. Well, let's talk about that, Mike. Well, first of all, incredible story of perseverance. And again, you're far too humble. It was about sticking with it that made everything work, in addition to taking the opportunities when you had them. But let's talk about the first of your two Grey Cup championships. As you know, 1996 with our Argos, the 84th Grey Cup. The double blue beat the Edmonton Eskimos 43-37 in front of 40,000 fans at, as you note, your hometown's dearly departed Iverwind Stadium. There was lots going on. Let's go through a few of these. Firstly, as you alluded, it was known as the snowball. The temperature game time was minus 10, 20 kilometer an hour winds, heavy snow. Tractors had to remove snow from the field prior to the game at halftime. Do you remember the cold? You know, I don't remember. I remember the the whole event, like the snow falling and it falling gently on the field. And it was like, living in a movie right it was it was pretty cool in that respect but we were very concerned uh all of us with the footing and the traction like we just didn't feel like oh this is going to be a defensive game this is not going to help us you know with the high-powered offense that we had because we had you know whenever you have Doug Flutie around you got a high-powered offense doesn't matter who's catching the ball or running the ball so we were nervous but you know kudos to, to Danny Webb uh who is the longtime and still equipment manager for the Argos who had a you know a duffel bags full of every broom ball shoe and extra spike and shoes that haven't been made in 25 years and whatever. So we, we were well prepared in terms of not having to worry about what could go wrong, but the, it didn't feel cold. It felt kind of magical in a way, and maybe more so for me because where we were playing, but it turned out to be at that time, the second highest scoring Grey Cup ever. It involved the most amazing missed catch off the toe, back to the hands, Eddie Brown catch down the sideline, um, and, and you know, interceptions and a Doug Flutie fumble and, uh, you know, kick return by Jimmy the Jet and all this great action, which turned into just a, a spectacle of a game. And um, I, I don't think you could have painted or, you know, a better portrait or a, a better, you know, vision of what that game would have looked like. Well, another interesting part about that game is it almost didn't happen. Financial problems nearly prevented the game from being played before Tim Hortons stepped in and provided the money needed to pay both teams' wages for the game. Is that accurate? Oh, it was touch and go. I mean, I think they kept a lot from us, but being from here and uh, and knowing the, the what was going on at that time, and, and don't forget that was uh, just after um, like American expansion. So we weren't out of the woods yet, right? Uh, I had a chance to play in American expansion and and here's the next great cap back to, to a normal, you know, eight or nine team league in the CFL at that time. And, you know, thankfully as players, we didn't hear a lot of it. We knew what was going on and it was a, a mess. And it's still talked about to this day. 
uh, and I'm just thankful that the game did happen and it and it turned into be one of the better games, better Grey Cups played. That we got it's paid. Great. Thank thank the Lord we got paid. Winning's <laughs> great, but getting paid's better. Yes. And the last thing about this game, very quirky pop culture note. If anyone is a fan of the television series How I Met Your Mother, this Grey Cup game served as a key plot point in a 2013 season eight episode where the originally Canadian character Robin Sherbatsky, played by Canadian actress Kobe Smulders, derails her music career during the Grey Cup's halftime show by unveiling her new grunge persona, which was such a failure that it triggered her move to the United States to pursue a broadcasting career, thus joining her group of friends in the New York City area. Side note, in reality, the halftime act for Grey Cup was the Nylons. Yes. You, were, you were probably too busy to enjoy the Nylons, or did you enjoy them, Mike? Well, it just, I, I just laugh because if everybody remembers the nylons, they were like the, the acapella group, right? That, uh, that did all the noises and, and, uh, not exactly what I would contend, yet no disrespect to the nylons, uh, but not what I anticipated would be a halftime act. But given the fact that we were going to get paid, I guess it fit into the payroll or the nylons for that game. It definitely, definitely an interesting choice. Now, Mike, your second Grey Cup championship was in 1999, playing for your Tiger Cats, the 87th Grey Cup. This was a rematch between the Tiger Cats and the Calgary Stampeders in front of 45,000 fans at BC Place in Vancouver. Revenge was apparently sweet, as this time your Tiger Cats defeated Calgary 32-21. Mike, you had a huge game, catching three passes for 51 yards, and as previously noted, you were named the game's most valuable Canadian do you regularly wear your two Grey Cup rings? I wear them if I have to go to an event. I don't ever wear my Argo ring in Hamilton. That's like, I value my life too much to do that. You know, they're like keepsakes to me now. They're, they're great to put on. They pale in comparison to the rings that are being produced nowadays. But, uh, you know, they mean the world to me, obviously because we won. When you play football and you're playing with 60-some-odd guys and you go through the trials and tribulations of a season and and not just on the field, off the field, like those things mean a lot, right? That's the most important. That's what I miss the most. I miss the guys, you know, I don't miss the awards and getting the crap kicked out of me are not things I care about much anymore. But that particular great cup was really, really uh, incredible. We, you know, my return to Hamilton was my choice in 97. Again, went through a very terrible season. We we're like two and 16, four and 14. Again, another one of those repeats. But then in comes Danny McManus, in comes Darren Flutie. In comes Ronnie Lancaster, and they do kind of what Don Matthews did in in Toronto in, in 96, 97, and just rebuilt, uh, you know, something that had some good, but just needed some leadership. And, you know, we went to the Great Cup in 98, had the top turnaround in league history, went 12-5-1. and one. We ended up losing a last-second field goal, and we started that 99 season with a video from Ronnie at, at training camp, and it was just a video of us losing. And the kind of the NFL films they did and the the ball going through, you know, the uprights and the game being over and Rocco Romano riding the horse with a cowboy hat in his head and, and all the festivities. And then it just went dead and it said, okay, let's go. Time to practice. And our goal from that day forward was not only to get to the Great Cup, but to win. So getting there, uh, we already knew, right, you know, we were we weren't a cocky group. We were cocky enough to know that we had what it took to win. We weren't going to lose personally for myself and for the local guys on the team, you know, Rob Hitchcock and Trevor Shaw and myself and Corey Grant and a few others, being able to win a great cup for your hometown is like the greatest thing in the world. There is no other feeling like it. I'm, I'm, I'm sad that it's the last time the, the Cats have won the great cup. That's a long time ago. I'm glad I was part of that at least. You know, I'd had to come off a 98, 98 season where I was top Canadian in the league went to a 99 season where I struggled with some injuries and just frankly, even more attention, right? It wasn't going to surprise people anymore. So my season totals were way down. I battled injury. And when I got to the great cup, I just wanted to make, help my team win. And I was fortunate enough that I, I was able to do that. It wasn't even so much my receiving and, and all that. It was, I made a, a really key special team play to stop, you know, a, a return. And it was those types of plays and that we came to expect from everybody on the tie cat roster. You expect guys to just go out and make plays. And maybe it wasn't going to be pretty, but it would get done. So that to me was a thrill and and probably the most important experience in my life to be able to do that. 
it, second only, or you know, the only second one would be playing that Grey Cup in Hamilton in '96. Well, you had such a unique career, and between your two stints with the Tie Cats and your two stints with the Argos, by my calculations, Mike, you've played in about a dozen Labor Day Classics. Talk about playing in Hamilton versus playing in Toronto in terms of different fan bases. And I'm also curious about when you walk the streets of Toronto or Hamilton, are you cheered or jeered? Well, I, I you know, back in the day in, in Toronto when I walked the streets, I'd get some recognition. I wouldn't I was not the the big dog uh maybe that I was in Hamilton, you know. Um uh, and being a Hamiltonian, it's a tough city. Right? So yeah, you get some cheers, but you get some jeers too. Believe me, I've heard it all. Uh and that's probably what I appreciate the most about playing for the Thai Cats was just the the truth, like just the the honesty, blatant honesty, bad, good, and otherwise. Sometimes when things are good, they're good. When they're bad, they're bad. So I still get recognized in around Hamilton, and then I and Hamilton's a city where when you're done playing or when you die, you, you then you're the best player that played. While you're currently playing, no, you got to keep proving it to me. So I can, you know, now that it's all said and done, it was a it was an incredible part of my life and in playing there. But playing in those in those Labor Day games were just Second to none, right? And he was always different in Hamilton, being a Hamiltonian cheering on for Labor Day because that was always, you know, Hamilton trying to beat Toronto. Toronto had this, and they were glitzy, and they were glamorous, and Hamilton was hard-nosed, steel-working, tough place to play. And it still is to this day. So that was a great experience. It was always different. It was it was a lot more intense on the Hamilton side, but I also got to experience it as an Argonaut coming into Hamilton, which was a whole other worldly experience altogether. Uh, I remember coming back, I think in 2002 or three and Pinner uh, pinball was the coach and purposely he's not a dumb guy. He trotted out for coin toss, all of the ex tie cats that were currently playing in Toronto. So I remember walking out there and having 30,000 people scream and chant Morielli sucks for about three minutes, which I thought was the greatest thing. I'm like, hell, well, at least they know who I am. But that was the difference between being an Argonaut playing in Hamilton and, and as a Hamilton tie cat playing in Hamilton, you had to win. It did not matter what the rest of the year looked like. You had to win on Labor Day. And I, I treasure those moments. Those were really, really good times. Absolutely great memories. Now, of course, every professional athlete faces retirement one day. How did your retirement come about in 2007? I call it forced retirement. <laughs> That's really uh, myself and Rob Hitchcock, who were the veterans on the team, we had just gone through, uh, finished our 12th season. We had an off season where there was a new coaching staff in Hamilton. Uh, there was new president in Hamilton. There was new general managers in Hamilton. And Rob and I were brought in as kind of, okay, you guys are the vets. You're going to help me be the eyes and ears of this team and help me run the show. And, you know, there's going to be a transition period. And we need you guys here. And, and we're going to do this together. Went into training camp, uh, which would have been our 13th season. Uh, I personally had a really good training camp, probably the best one I've had in, in decades, uh, and felt really good about it. Rob and I didn't play in our first preseason game, which was probably the only time in my career that I never played a preseason game. I played in, in all of them. So I thought, oh, fine. 13 years later, I get to not play in a preseason. Like, I'm really enjoying this. They went off to Winnipeg or whatever to play. I can't even remember if they won or lost. And the next day... You know, I get a knock on the door and we're in our dorms at Mac and uh, it's Mike McCarthy. He's, hey, we come downstairs. We, we want to chat with you. And, and I just assumed at that time it was about the CBA. I was the executive member of the Players Association and there was a lot of stuff going back and forth. So I went downstairs, walked in. The minute I opened the door and saw, you know, Scott Mitchell and Marcel Desjardins and, and, and everybody. The only person I was there was the coach. And for whatever reason, Charlie Taft was the coach. He wasn't there. And I said... You're, you're kidding me, right? There's no way this is happening. I already knew it just didn't feel right. And they just said, listen, we're, we're going to, we already had this talk with Hitch. I said, what? You, you did this to Hitch? Never mind me. You know, Hitch was another Hamiltonian, played all his years there, didn't go back and forth, was a tie cat through and through, and, and now is on the wall of fame, and rightfully so. So that was like a big punch in the face. And then we went back upstairs, uh, saw Hitch, you know, we had our moment and in comes Charlie Taff. Hey guys, what's going on? I heard on, and he starts getting emotional. The team is on the field playing or getting ready for practice. The head coach is still talking to us and we're like, listen, we're, we're frustrated. We're this is our last year. We're not playing beyond this. We were here to actually help you kind of get your feet set. And, you know, we both had great training camps. 
He goes, oh, really? This is your last year? Want me to go down there and like change it? Talk to them? I'm like, no, we were just cut. Oh, you're not ta- You're not going to change it. What, what? This is crazy. So that turned into one of the oddest experiences in probably press conferences ever. They wanted to, to make an announcement. They wanted us to retire. And we said, no, we're not retiring. Or I, I said, I'm not retiring. You cut us. And that's the story. I mean, I want to play. So we ended up having this really crazy, uh, they were going to have a press conference. I said, well, if you're going to have a press conference, Rob and I need to be there. Like we need to, we've spent all our careers there. We have a press conference. It's the most bizarre press conference because, you know, the person leading the press conference is starting to get emotional and crying because we're getting cut, but they're the ones that cut us. And we're looking around, well, what is going on here? The, the, the media that was in attendance had never seen anything like it before. And we got a chance to speak. And it was kind of a very, very strange uh, way to go out. But it, it felt right because Rob and I were, were heard. And, you know, fast track to now, the first couple of years were tough on me. I didn't want to see a tight cat game. I didn't care whether they won or lost. As a matter of fact, if they lost, it, it kind of made me feel good. That's that's the, the spite you have. You know, you, you don't know how to deal with it. But I fast track to now, and and I have a great relationship with the organization. And I do a lot of work for them, and you know these things happen. They always tell you, and Ronnie always said, Lancaster, you make them rip that jersey off your back, right? You got to go to your terms, and it never happens in sport, right? It's very, very rare. Maybe five percent of people get to go in their own terms. When I look back on it now, it was just another opportunity to grow and get better and experience that, and. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Absolutely. And of course, you did so much, Mike, after retirement, including serving as president of the CFL Players Association. But the questions I had for you were about your entrepreneurial career, the Filthy and McNasty's Restaurant Group. How were you involved? And was, was this something you were doing while you were still playing? Yeah, that was, you know, I always had this entrepreneurial spirit to do things, whether it was Filthy's ownership, whether it was the Morielli Macaroni campaign, raising money for for the children's hospital, the dying with the line, or all these things that I just, my camps that I was doing, I just had that. I don't know why. I just had that in me. I always felt like, okay, let's try this. Let's do that. A little bit of risk averse. So I don't mind taking chances. And I really wanted to help the community. So the, the, you know, the filthiest thing was just, it was crazy. You're a professional football player. You know, I, I'm familiar with the guys that own the filthies at this point. There was one in, in Oakville and one in Burlington. They've been around a long time. They were opening one in Hamilton and they want to be to be involved as celebrity owner. And the celebrity owner at that time was, you know, a group of like 10 of us and Donovan Bailey and Mike O'Shea and Mike Vanderjet and, and a whole bunch of people that put a few bucks in to, to be part of this thing and really ride the wave and use our name to, in cachet. And it exploded. Like it just became the coolest place, the greatest place, the place to be at. You know, it coincided with our kind of runs through to consecutive Grey Cups in Hamilton and and then I ended up buying into the the whole company and in all the stores. And we grew to 14 restaurants at one point across the country, even had one in Pittsburgh, you know, right near the stadium. It was the most insane time, everything that you could imagine and you read about. And no, there's no iPhones and no cameras. Thank the Lord. And you got away with murder. You have a professional athlete owning a bar, living the high life. Like I probably took years off my life and took a lot of touchdowns probably away that I could have gotten. And I, I do have some regrets from, from, you know, falling into that trap of, of just enjoying the moment, but it was incredible. You know, it was the place to be. It was a lot of fun. It, it really was a place for, you know, for our team to go and to feel at home, to be taken care of. And, and, and I loved every minute of it. That's great. And there's still, I'm in Richmond Hill and there's a filthy McNasty's just down the street. So they, they, uh, they still exist. You also, Mike, were a broadcaster, TSN, Sportsnet, and with your hometown Tiger Cats. How did you enjoy being on the other side behind the microphone? I loved it. Uh, it, it came natural to me. I, I happen to be a guy that can, can talk a lot, I guess, and, and have no problem talking. As you can tell, but we're already almost at an hour. I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I, I got lucky. Uh, Dwayne Ford was at the score at that time. He was doing the color commentary with Tim McAuliffe uh, for the OUA football and for the Vanier Cups and, and all that stuff. And then he got the job with the CFL and it left an opening. And I just happened um, at that point to, you know, I'd done a lot of media stuff and and I guess was articulate enough to get be given a chance. And 
fortunately filled his shoes and, and was able to work with Tim. And Tim is just a legend. Like Tim makes you look good, right? He's just very well prepared, knows his stuff, sets you up. So it was a great way for me again to, you know, I was a player. I was an executive member of the Players Association. I was president of the Players Association. Now I'm a broadcaster. I looked at this thing on almost every side. And that really is what I took to help create the CBL was all those learned experiences around domestic sport and, you know, Canadian sports. So I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I had opportunities to do probably seven or eight Vanier Cups, whether it was with the score, and then it was with TSN, and then it was with Sportsnet, and CBC. I've done kind of the whole gamut. I, you know, I've stepped aside from that now and, and other uh, people have taken the place and done a tremendous job. But what a great experience in life to be able to to talk about football and travel the country. And uh, yeah, it was really, really cool. Well, as you know, you were teammates with both Doug Flutie in Toronto and Darren Flutie in Hamilton. Is it accurate to say that anytime there's a Flutie family gathering, there is a place setting available for Mike Morreale? I hope so. It's probably the other way around. Whenever I have a gathering, they want to throw it, come down and have some good Italian food. That's, that's more likely. Uh, but, you know, Doug and Darren couldn't be more different. Could it be more different? They Doug was a very straight and narrow and hell of a football player, and that they have in common, no doubt about it. But Darren was a wild man. Darren liked to have a good time. Darren fit in very well uh, with us in the Ticats. We had a good time. His name is actually going on the Ticat Wall of Fame this season. So he's going to be put up there uh, at the end of August. So I'm really excited to see, or the middle of August, excited to see him. But um, I was very blessed in my career uh, with quarterbacks. I started with Kent Austin in Toronto, uh, then Doug Flutie, then Damon Allen, then Danny McManus, Anthony Calvillo in Hamilton. Uh, I mean, all legends, all Hall of Famers. You become a very good receiver when you have Hall of Fame quarterbacks throwing you the ball. Yeah, it's some good talent throwing it to you, but of course you had to catch it, as you know. Let's talk about kickers. Mike Vanderjat, otherwise known as that idiot kicker by NFL legendary quarterback Peyton Manning. Now, Mike was actually the most accurate kicker in not only the CFL, but the NFL at the time of his retirement. Mike was a character and still is a character. I, I happened to be just randomly golfing with Donovan Bailey the other day, and Donovan and Mike know each other very well because they grew up in Oakville together. And we started talking about Vandy and all the stories about Vandy because you know, he, he's just a, di- he's a different dude and he's, you know, he's, he's fun and he's on the edge, but what an athlete, an athlete in all sports. He went to, if I'm not mistaken, Michigan state as a quarterback could have, could have played there, you know, went, did great things for us, won a lot of games for us in Toronto, went to, went to the NFL, won a lot of games there. He was, and still is a character. And, you know, I, I enjoyed playing with him because you didn't see a, a a kicker look like him, right? Six foot four, six foot five, athletic, could run, could run fakes, could throw the ball, could punt, could field, uh, you know, field goal kicks. So, uh, you know, seeing guys like that go on is, is really exciting, right? I always, I don't have an NFL team. I always had a team that I followed because I knew somebody that I played with or played against on that team. And Vandy was one of those guys. You played in Toronto for the late great Don Matthews. His players loved him. There is nobody like Don Matthews. And from the outside, you have people have a, a perception of Don, maybe not a great one because he was crass and brass and not, not very friendly in front of the media and very short. But behind the scenes, he was the epitome of a player's coach. He would allow us to do things that in pro football were unheard of, which is like take your helmet off, sit on it, lay down on the ground, like do whatever you want. I don't care. Hey guys, you know, promise me a victory on Sunday. We won't practice today. Like the craziest things, but it worked. And if you were Don's guy, which you had to be, because if you weren't, you were gone. If you were Don's guy, he would do anything for you. He would protect you. He would treat you like an adult. He would get you in the best position to win. And his teams, whether it was in Toronto or Montreal or Edmonton or wherever he coached, they always won. Um, they always won because the players would do anything for Don Matthews. And yeah, he was just a, a treat to be with. Hard to explain because so against the grain of what any coach in football would ever be like. And I don't think he could ever be replicated, but he certainly was one of a kind. 
Well, everyone's got a great Don Matthews story, and he's always spoken of so highly. As you mentioned, Mike, you are a first cousin of Toronto Argonauts legend, Paul Mazzotti. I didn't realize you got a chance to play with him, which was great. Yep. But do you ever get misdirected mail or email meant for Mike Morreale, the writer for NHL.com? Funny enough, I do. Now, this guy either, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm stealing some of his followers or he's stealing some of mine. I don't know. I, I've never met him. I've never spoken to him. But obviously, he's doing okay because I get, you know, these alerts that uh, my name's being mentioned somewhere. And generally, it's him writing about NHL draft or whatever else has happened. Uh, he's a good paisan, of course, uh, which is great. But, you know, it, I truthfully, and this is a Hamilton thing, I get called Rob Hitchcock all the time. And Rob gets called me all the time. And we just go with it because it, yeah, it's, 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 not, it's not worth the, you know, collecting it. But our whole careers up until this day, we still get, and we don't look that much alike, but we're both Hamilton kids and and, uh, you know, we're both out in the community. So that's the one that plays with me more than anything. Well, Mike, I got to ask, when someone comes up to you and goes, hey, Rob Hitchcock, and I have your autograph, what do you sign? Rob Hitchcock. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting good at it. It's been year 42. It's for you. As we close up, I want to ask about the CEBL Championship weekend. I imagine this is a huge event on your calendar. Yeah, and it really, again, is born out of kind of that Grey Cup meets the Final Four. Uh, NCAA Final Four. It's a you know single elimination tournament style play. Top team for top four teams. In the league this year will be in Vancouver. Uh, it'll start on the on the Wednesday night through to the Sunday. You know we'll have our award show. We'll have community activations. Uh, a bit of a, a championship weekend CBL festival and live music and and legacy projects and three on three tournaments and of course the the uh, conference finals on on the Friday night and then the championship game on the Sunday. Uh, all to be aired on, on TSN, and, and it really becomes a destination for for basketball. And that's the beauty of it. It is a, because we play in the summer, it really affords itself to be all that and more because of the ability to just enjoy yourself outside. So we're, we're looking forward to that. This will be year five, and uh, it, it really has become a really important part of what we do. This being the Toronto Legends podcast, I, of course, have to focus on the center of the universe, you do have teams in Brampton and Scarborough. Any plans for additional teams in the GTA? You know, we've talked about it. I don't think you'll ever see a team downtown Toronto. Um, and I say that just because there's a lot of stuff going on in the city, right? And we believe with our Scarborough team in the east and our Brampton team in the west that we've kind of, we, we've really covered two of the most dynamic areas for Canadian basketball. There's a talent that's developed out of those two markets arguably is the top talent that's produced anywhere in the country. So we feel good there. Obviously, we're always open to other opportunities and ideas, and there's been plenty of them, even if you look at the Durham region and, and other regions that are, you know, there's basketball-hungry hotbeds in this country that are just every day keep getting uncovered because they've never had anybody to uncover them, right? Or they've never had a, a place to focus. So, you know, right now we're a 10-team league. Will likely be an 11 team league next year, soon to be a 12 team, likely the year after. And I think we will we will enjoy that. Can we go to 20 teams? Yeah, we can. We can, but we have to do it in a very smart way. And I'm not sure we want to rush to do that. I think we really want to enjoy where we're at now. We got a lot of stuff going on in a short period of time, and we really want to just continue to master that so we can be around for 100 and some odd years ourselves. Sounds good. You've been great with your time, Mike. As we close up, where can we best follow you and where can we best follow the Canadian Elite Basketball League? Yeah, for, for me, it's at Mike Morielli 18 Those are the handles for Twitter and Instagram and whatever else. Uh, again, I'm getting old. Um, and then for, for the CBL, it's uh, the website's www.cbl.ca or CEBL League, uh, just a one L. And that'll be all our handles. Um, you can find us uh, we have an app, CBL Mobile. You can find us on CBL Plus, which is our OTT platform. You can find us on TSN Plus and on the linear games on TSN, select games. And hopefully read about us in major newspapers and everywhere, you know. But but the best place to start is is get on our socials. Get to feel of who we are. Get underst understanding of our brand. Be able to watch some of the highlights of the players that play, um, and the fans in the stands. Um, you know, I, I think... 
you know, basketball is made for that type of content. And uh, we do that pretty well. Well, you definitely made the case for it. It was great meeting you. It was great hearing all your stories, but but your past and your future. And I want to wish you continued success. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. It was my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Mike Morielli, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Trial Legends Podcast. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.